the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, reality has been hacked and everything is up for grabs. It's up to a savvy orthodontist with a dark secret and a multilingual ferret to get to source code in order or else the pink clouds will stop asking nicely for our submission. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Jonathan Grauberd. And I'm Allie Heilman. And we are the Rapscallions, formerly known as the Bain Summer Interns. We're still the Summer Interns, but now also Rapscallions. Now with swords. We stole them from Tony. This week, we have part two of John Ringo's interview to discuss his lead-filled collaboration with Larry Correa, Monster Hunter Memoirs Saints. It's Monster Hunter in New Orleans. This time with larval old ones, 20-foot-tall alligators, and more vampires than Mardi Gras beads. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Liadin Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Now, here's the news. July has come about, and it is time to hear the fable of the Earks. Those tragic E's who were lost when the second ark sank to the bottom of the ocean. Some say that whales sink to them on midsummer nights. Although really we have some electronic advanced reader copies and this month we have some of Bain's finest. First off, the long-awaited culmination of David Weber's epic Honor Harrington saga uncompromising honor. This is it, the climax of the internationally best-selling Honor Arrington series, and Honor is in top form. The time has come. The Manticorn Star Kingdom and its allies go to war against the massive and corrupt Solarian Empire. After a tragic loss, Honor Arrington enters the fray once again. She's filled with steely resolve, possessed of cult competence, and motivated by a fiery determination to take the fight to the enemy and end its menace forever. And we also have the conclusion to Brendan Bois' Dark Victory, Alien Invasion Trilogy, Black Triumph. The war for the future of Earth is on. 16-year-old Randy Knox, a newly minted lieutenant in the U.S. Army, has been fighting the alien creepers since he was 12. At one point, it seemed the war was over when the alien's orbital battle station had been destroyed. But now a second creeper orbital battle station has arrived. While returning to his home unit, Randy's convoy is ambushed. Separated from his fellow soldiers and his canine companion, Thor, Randy faces the ultimate horror of every American serviceman, to become a prisoner of war of the aliens. Black Triumph by Brendan Dubois and Uncompromising Honor by David Weber, both available in eARCs in July. This is part two of the interview with John Ringo about Monster Hunter Memoirs, Saints. For part one, check out last week's podcast. I want to welcome John Ringo to the podcast. Hey, John, it's so great to have you on. Hi. 
John Ringo is the New York Times best-selling creator of the Pauline War series, including one of my personal favorites, uh, first novel in the series, A Hymn Before Battle. Really like that book. He's the creator of the Council War series, the Troy Rising novels, the Empire Man series, co-authored with David Weber, um, all those Kildare uh, military adventure series. On the fantasy side, he's the author of the Queen of Wands series. Uh, I don't know if that's what it's called. Is Special Circumstances is the series name. Um, ah. And it's uh, Princess of Wands, Queen of Wands, and Queen of Swords is the next book. And uh, with zombies, uh, but back to science fiction, lately it's been the Black Tide Rising books, and he's the author of many other short stories and uh, series, standalone books, including uh, writing, in addition to David Weber, with Michael Z. Williamson, Tom Crapman, Travis Taylor, Ryan Sear, Julie Cochran, and, and now Larry Correa. Uh, John was in the U.S. Army, a specialist in the 82nd Airborne Division. He served in the Florida National Guard along the way, picked up the Combat Infantryman Badge, Parachutist Badge, Army Commendation Medal, Good Conduct Medal, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal in Granada, and the National Defense Service Medal. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of fun stuff in here. One of the fun things about saints is the weaponizing of the holy water and the industrialized weaponizing of it too. Um, don't want to get into too many specific story details, but that was really a cool and innovative use of of a horror uh, staple. I thought. Yeah, you know, nobody ever uses enough holy water, in my opinion. Um, you know, in, in, in universes where demons or vampires are harmed by holy water, I have only ever seen once where anybody used it effectively. And that was in a, uh, the, the TV show Supernatural, an episode where they uh, did holy water in the sprinkler system of a house or of, a, of the yard. And there were demons all around, but they put holy water into the sprinkler system and they fired it off, and all the demons got hit by holy water and started screaming and writhing. But, yeah, I mean, if, if I was in one of those vampire universes where, you know, and I was being chased by a vampire or had some time to plan it, at least, uh, in a building, I would go ahead and just go up to that tank at the top of the building and, you know, turn it all into holy water and then throw off the sprinkler system. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing about your, uh, in, for instance, in the Black Tide Rising books, is that um, your heroes think rationally about how to kill these these uh, things that are coming after them instead of just blindly giving in to fear. And often it's a modern sort of industrial solution. Uh, I suppose one of the problems with a lot of my books, one of the reasons that they've never actually, you know, I'm not James Patterson, basically, is that my characters do approach things from the point of view of, okay, we're in this illogical situation. Um, we're dealing with monsters. We're dealing with zombies. We're dealing with inviting aliens. What is the most intelligent possible thing we can do to destroy them? Uh, and, you know, I put a lot of thought into that. You know, if, if you're going to be up against a massive monster, which is, you know, the only thing that can harm it is holy water, then make a whole lot of holy water, um, which they do. And make use of the New Orleans Fire Department to perhaps disseminate it. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. so 
So it's a really cool. Um, the supernatural weapons and the the normal ones, and it you know as in most Monster Hunter books, or as in all the Monster Hunter books, they're really cool in this one. Um, a couple other things. Uh, Is it in Saints or Sinners that they're fighting the Sobek on the on the uh, on the bridge? Oh, this is in this one. Yeah, the, the Sobek. Uh, is this? It's an alligator. It's a crocodile thing, right? Where the stomach finally gets out of the canal. Yeah. Yeah. Because it keeps running into the pump station and getting stuck there, but the, but the idiots at the MCB uh, let it out. Okay. <laughs> that's a, um, that's insane. Yeah. What? Yeah, that was uh, the fear of alligators in sewers. The that's sort of like the Sobek turns up as sort of comic relief, even though it kills a few people uh, in Saints, as a matter of fact. It seems like you were having a lot of fun with, like, how do we kill a giant alligator that got out? <laughs> well, a, a, giant, a giant bipedal alligator, mind you. Um, you know, so it's, it, it can crawl along on, a, on, a, on all fours, but it mostly walks around up like, upright. Um, so it's this sort of alligator Godzilla thing that's very, very unstable. It's not good at walking, but for some reason it it it, it feels like it has to walk. Um, and uh, I, when I was doing research for this, one of the things I did was I just dove into all sorts of mythos, and I ran across the Sobek at one point. And I went, you know, the whole point of the New Orleans books for me, and Larry had some issues with it, was how could you make New Orleans in the 1980s more insane than it already was? Okay? And I, I said that to somebody who had been a long-term resident of New Orleans, and he went, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. I said, well, I had a 50-foot crocodile walking down the 14th Street Canal upright on, you know, upright. He goes, Oh hell, man! We just turned out to watch. <laughs> now that would be crazy in the New Orleans 1980s. Trust me, that just fit right in. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, all right. So, um, oh, I want to talk about a, a couple of the recurring. We we get some ends to some uh, to some character sort of arcs, um, and. One of the things that you talked about earlier that we, we sort of alluded to was um, so was Chad's philosophy, and he, he gives a load of it to to Milo, and Milo is a character in the in the main books, and and we get a lot of this friendship between Chad and Milo. He's sort of the real big uh, personal connection that Chad has to the main series, right? Um, how explain their relationship and and how it has changed or uh, grown or not grown or or whatever. Milo in the main series is, uh, he's still kind of a crazy guy, but he's older. He's one of the, uh, you know, he's one of the old hands. Um, and he's been around, he's seen a lot, lost a lot of friends. But Milo uh, was from a large family that was wiped out by werewolves, and he was saved by Earl. So he's got this really strong connection to Earl. And, and you, you get that in the main series. But this takes Milo back 40 years, 30 years or so, um, to the 1980s. And, uh, you know, at one point, uh, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in centers. He and Chad are having a moment. Uh, and uh, and Milo's like, you know, why do I even like you? He says, you know, because I, I hate my family, and you lost yours, so we've got to find family where we can. Um, mm. And they are. They're, uh, the, the relationship in the books between uh, Milo and Chad is uh, – it's it's one of the really strong personal, uh, you know, human, if you will, moments of the books. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the few. I mean, Chad will not let himself connect with most people because they keep getting killed. Uh, yeah, Chad won't let him let himself connect with a lot of people because they keep getting killed, uh, and also because, uh, uh, you know, Chad is somebody who uh, he's probably. He's the kind of guy who probably would have gotten married. He might not have stayed married, but he probably would have gotten married. But he doesn't want to leave behind a widow, um, and he doesn't want to leave behind kids. Uh, he's somebody that would like to have kids, but he doesn't want to leave behind uh, orphans. And he doesn't figure that he's got much of a lifespan. He's way too crazy about the stuff that he does, to the point that he gets dressed down a lot by the MHI leadership because – you know, you can't be going in solo against stuff all the time. And he's like, you know, live fast, die young. You know, when it's my time, God will call me home. Uh, you know, it, I hadn't gotten into it, but he had a, a, he just, you know, people say, so you had a near-death experience? He says, no, I had a death-death experience. Um, and got basically told by God, well, by St. Peter, that, uh, you know, he could go to heaven. He was in. Yeah, he had some sins, but that's okay. You know, there's forgiveness for that kind of stuff. Um, or he could go back and do some stuff God needed done. And he said, well, you know, it's a mission from God. How can I say no? So he goes back. So he knows that if he stays more or less within the parameters that he's already stayed, he's going to be able to make it back into heaven. He's already been dead once. Um, you know, it, it, he has no fear of death. You know, he, he literally has no fear of death um, because it's just death. He has fear of getting hurt really bad, but he'd been hurt really bad already and survived it. Um, so he just goes into situations that most people kind of look at and go, you've got to be crazy. And he's like, mm, I've done weirder shit. One other uh, big subplot in the book that we should probably touch on, um, which it seems prescient to me almost. I don't know uh, when, if when you were writing this, uh, the stuff was going on. There's a big subplot of bureaucratic nastiness by the feds, the the monster control board or bureau in the book um, that even involves some legislatures, and it just um, really kind of resonates with some of the stuff going on now. We got this Agent Campbell, um, Myers, um, and they're trying to just railroad poor Chad. Uh, who are these creeps, and, and why are they hating on poor Chad? And, and Chad sort of Alinsky's them in a way uh, to get back at them. We just discussed that, that subplot briefly. And did, when were you, uh, is it just prescient, or is there a connection with, uh, with the current political madness? What's going on right now uh, when you talk about uh, McCabe, Comey, Strozo, Page, all of those things that are going on that are coming out right now 
in, in all the congressional investigations. None of that is a surprise to anybody who has been paying attention for a long time. Um, and I've paid attention for a long time. Larry is the one who is very, very, very anti-federal LEO. Um, he is much more so than I am. Um, but the Monster Control Board is a, it's in a complex and screwed up situation. Um, and the, the Monster Control Board's job is not to actually control monsters. It, it is, but only on the really big stuff. What Chad and his group ends up doing at the end of Saint is something that the Monster Control Board should have done themselves. That should have been a Monster Control Board job. Um, MHI has to take the job because of the political problems with MCB. But MCB's primary job is to keep the secret of the supernatural from getting out. And for reasons which are gotten into in the books that I won't get into, it. it's, called the, it's called the first reason. So a lot, a lot of people who end up in MCB are people who are natural dicks, is the best way to put it. They are the people that you do not want to have a badge. Because in MCB, you can do stuff which is totally unconstitutional and it's totally okay. But a lot of people who end up in MCB end up doing the job because they recognize the importance of the job. And they do not like the fact that it is totalitarian and crappy. Um, and some people vacillate back and forth. The specific character in this case, Myers, is one who vacillates back and forth is the best way to put it. Um, and Myers is one of Larry's characters. The head of MCB at the time is very much a political player. And he is much more like the, he is actually very, very similar to Comey. Did I do that intentionally? No, I did not do that intentionally. But, yeah, it is kind of interesting that given some of the stuff that is coming out right now and this book is coming out right now, it seems prescient, but it's mostly because having looked at the way that the upper echelons of the DOG, DOJ and the FBI work, it's what's coming out right now is not surprising. Yeah, it seems like, uh, yeah, it, but in any case, uh, it it did uh, certainly uh, certainly did resonate um, to to hit it reading it today, um, and and you know and who knows uh, in a few years all this will be forgotten, but it still be a a, a good um, just a reminder of not trusting federal federal bureaucrats farther than you can throw them uh, in fictional form, even uh, even if it's not. Um, Anyway, that and that's a that's a nasty part of the book that um, part of the it, it's kind of a monster in itself that Chad has to deal with, and it's what sends him to London. He has to get out of the country. Yeah, he well, he does not technically have to leave the country, but he cannot do his job, and since he's kind of addicted to his job, he has got to go do he has he has to substitute the addiction. So he substitutes his other addiction, which is academia. Um, and, and Chad is a very addictive character, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is a guy that, that is a very, very addictive. You know, he's, he's, he's a guy who 
totally focuses on something. So he yeah. he goes over to finish his PhD and and uh, pick up another master's and that kind of thing. And uh, and have a few relationships. That, it, <laughs> huh? Have a few relationships. Uh, ah, Beverly, uh, who's actually based on a girl I knew one time. Uh, <laughs> English girl. Um, yeah. But uh, he. Uh, and in the course of his research, he's also researching all this information that he's gotten about uh, what's going on in New Orleans and everything that he's been trying to figure out about what's going on in New Orleans. And in the course of his, his Yeti research, he ends up meeting uh, an old llama who is able to correctly translate the very, very euphemistic terms that are used in this ancient Tibetan manuscripts that Chad is drawing upon for information. And that lava finally, you know, clarifies for him what it what the problem is. And that's how he, he figures out what the actual problem is in New Orleans, which is the larval old one. That's a um that's a really cool scene in the in Saints as well when he when he goes to this place in Colorado to hang out with the with the Tibetan shaman. Oh yeah, with uh, uh with with Father Pema. With Father Pema? Yeah. yeah, Father Pema is a cool character too. There's a lot of cool characters in. Um and also uh, on a lighter note, Princess uh Shalala shows back up briefly. It makes a vid- it makes a little guest appearance in Saints and uh <laughs> every time Chad even thinks about her, he starts talking in her. Yeah. Uh, Valley Girl speak. Yeah, um, yeah. Party, party all night long. Party, party till break of dawn. Shake your little group thing. Yeah, yeah. Shake your group thing. Princess Shalala. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So, I get it. Yeah. Like, totally. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a great character. She comes back, and we we get some uh, moments with Frank's your favorite and when mine in the Monster Hunter main series. Um, what, uh, so what are you working on these days? What's going on in Ringo world? Um, more collaborations. Um, I'm working with, uh, Mike Mike Massa, who, uh, wrote a short story for the first Black Tide anthology. Um, and he is doing the story of Tom, Tom Smith, who is the brother of Steve Smith and, you know, Uncle Tom from Under the Graveyard Sky. Uh, he is what happened to Tom Smith after the fall of New York in the Black Tide Rising universe. Um, it was originally supposed to be one book. The book literally just got too big, uh, so we had to split it. And uh, so it's now two books. And the first book is coming out in November. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's out in November. Um, what is the title again? I'm... And the title... <laughs> um... <laughs> The title is, it changed several times. I've got it here. Uh, the Valley of Shadows. Is it going to be Valley of Shadows? It's going to be Valley of Sha- the Valley of Shadows by John Ringo and Mike Massa. Right. The problem is that Valley of Shadows was the title that we settled on for the original book. Um, yeah. And it doesn't really fit very well with the... Uh, the first book should actually just be called Escape from New York. 
Um, but yeah, it's Valley of Shadows. Anyway, let's let's cut all of that. Now, what was the question okay. that you asked me? Um, so, what are you working on? I'm working with Mike Nassa, blah blah. Um, yeah, and the first book is coming out in November, I believe, and it's called Valley of Shadows, and it's really cool. It's about the fall of New York and uh, Tom Smith escaping from New York with this ragtag band of people. And the second book will be about the movement that they make from Virginia into Tennessee and the beginning of reestablishment of, of civilization around the Wattsbark Dam in the Tennessee Valley. And that, the title for that one is still to be determined. Cool. And he is, uh, the main character in these books are, is, is a, a former SEAL who's a security guy who's getting some people out of New York at, at the, in the first book after the zombie plague hits. Australian SAS, and he's the head of security for a major international bank. Um, so his main thing is keeping the bank running for as long as possible. Um, and it gets into a lot of the politics of all of the, all the very, very slippery politics that he has to do, uh, very, very gray stuff, uh, a lot of very, very, very amoral, not amoral, but uh, tough moral choices that have to be made along the line. Um, you know, who does he ally with? Who does he, you know, who is, who are the people that he can ally with and still hold his nose? Um, to be able to keep everything running for as long as possible. It's a really interesting book. It's a very interesting look into the character, and it's a very interesting look into what it would take to hold civilization together in a situation where civilization should have just fallen. But a lot of people are working very, very hard to keep it going, and in that situation are having to make a lot of very, very ugly choices. Um, mm including who they ally with. And in a lot of ways, some of the people that you think of as being the worst people to ally with actually end up being the better people to ally with. Uh, because, like, uh, he, gets, he gets into a, a relationship, you know, a, a business relationship with uh, some guys who are basically Italian mobs. And those are actually some of the some of the people, some of them are people that he can get along with better because they have a line, they have lines they will not cross. Uh, whereas there are people in the government who there are no lines they will not cross. Um, you know, to the point where you're looking at it and you're going, you know, these, these Italian mobsters are actually better people than the people in the government um, because they're shit, they just won't do. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Well, we're really looking forward to that. Um, any uh, solo Ringo projects on the horizon? Um, I'm kind of stuck on a bunch of stuff. I have partials on several manuscripts, and I just really am kind of stuck. Um, and I've been stuck for a while, and I don't like it. But one of the things I found out over the winter is it, it's really weird. I only write well when I'm cold. And I haven't been the right kind of cold in a long enough. Um, 
so part of the problem has just been temperatures uh, and and where I can get access to the temperatures that I need. Uh, part of it is that I have not gotten enough outside stimulus, but part of it is just temperatures. So uh, that is really freaky, John. <laughs> what? Have you experimented with different, uh, like writing? Yeah, I write temperatures best below uh, forty degrees. I I write best below forty degrees. Um, can you feel again? your fingers? Uh, Jonathan wants to know if you can feel your fingers typing. Some of the best in such some conditions. Of the best writing I, some of the best writing I ever did was in New Hampshire in February on a screened porch at night. It was minus six degrees. What do you think it is about your subconscious or your muse or whatever that, that requires this? Did something happen to you? <laughs> I don't know. I've got a condition called hypergraphia, uh, yeah. which I had a condition called hypergraphia, um, which is just this, this aggressive need to write. And the, the area which governs hypergraphia is um, in the upper left occiput, uh, the, towards the back of your head, that rounded part of your skull at the back of your head on the left-hand side is where it is. And when I am writing really hard, that area heats up. So I have to actually keep that area cool uh, to be able to write. Wow. That's almost Freudian in... No, I actually know exactly what the problem is, yeah. Yeah. Um, like you're an engine that needs cooling by certain radiation. Yeah, I'm kind of like Terry Pratchett's trolls uh, or, a, or a server. I, I need to be kept cooled down. But not my body, <laughs> You know, when I'm writing like that, you know, you're asking about my fingers. I wear what's called wristies, and I wear them up underneath my clothing, and they keep the blood coming down my wrist warm enough that it keeps my fingers warm. Um, and there are times, like when I was out, when, you know, New Hampshire, uh, minus six degrees, there's no wind, mind you. I had my hood pulled down because my ears were so hot because the, the heat was just kind of boiling off my head. At minus six degrees. The problem is, I moved from an apartment that was kind of low here in Chattanooga, that had a sheltered porch, to up on top of a ridge that has that does not have a sheltered porch. So during the winter was when I used to do most of my writing, and this porch I just can't sit out in it in the winter. It's just no matter how much I bundle up, the wind just blows too hard. Um, and it just cuts through whatever I've got. So I've got a bunker underneath the porch, but I can never get the bunker cold enough. That's the problem. Uh, well, you've got to solve this. <laughs> Perhaps you have. I don't know. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> legions of people are waiting for you to figure out how to solve this. Well, that's cool. Um, is uh, the next time anybody can see you will be at Liberty Con, uh, which is coming up this weekend. Before we actually post this, um, are you going to be out and about any in the, in the I coming months? Dragon Con. I Dragon, am Dragon Con. Con. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's been yeah. announced yet, but I've turned in my letter of agreement, and, and they are they've, they've accepted my application, so I will be at I will be at Dragon Con. Cool. And Bain will have a, the full contingent there as well. Um, and that's where we'll give out the uh, 
the uh, winner of David F. Sherrad's uh, little contest for the year's best uh, military SF, and which often is a place where a lot of Bain writers will congregate also because Tony will be there, my, my boss and the publisher here. Um, so if you want to run into Ringo, um, sounds like Dragon Con's a good place to, to do it. That's, that's sort of your, uh, your base con. I mean, I've seen you uh, sort of holding forth in the... Do you still, still smoke or have you given that up? No, I still smoke. My wife said I'm not allowed to give it up. <laughs> yeah. I, I've certainly seen you holding forth on this balcony. Um, it's even kind of scary, the amount of people that pack out there just to, uh, just to, of course, a lot of them just want to smoke, <laughs> but to hang out with you. So Yeah. Yeah, I'm either out on the, frequently I'm on the cigar terrace at the Hyatt, or I am on the, in the veranda, which is underneath the Scar Terrace of the Hyatt, which is down on the, uh, on the Regency level, out back. And Princes of Wands, I think that's the book. It has a lot of a lot said at Dragon Con, that one of your books, of course, where you sort of uh, explore the culture of that con that you know so well. Yeah, it was Queen of Wands. Queen of Wands, yeah. Uh, Wands, the first ones, yeah. And Queen of Shadows is the one that I am... Um, uh, pardon me, Queen of Swords is the one that I'm working on right now, which won't have anything to do with the convention. Um, I have, uh, I'm wrestling with whether to take it, uh, take it up a notch is the best way to put it, uh, make it more apocalyptic. Um, but, uh, that's, uh, I've actually got, I have enough words for a novel right now um, in two separate, two separate stories, uh, but I don't actually have either one of the stories completed, and I'm not sure if there are stories that, if that's the story that I want to tell. Um, you know, it's a very fundamental thing. Do I want to tell that story? Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if that's the story that I want to tell. Um, so that's one of the things I'm wrestling with. And also, I haven't finished those two stories. Um, and uh, I'm also working on a uh, Keldara book, which is the uh, Mike O'Neill, or pardon me, Mike, Mike Harmon, uh, Keldara, uh, Georgian Mountain Infantry, the Mountain Tigers book. Uh, which takes them in a in a slightly different direction, and that is something that I'm I'm working on right now. Uh, but I'm not sure if again I'm not sure if that's the story that I want to tell with them. Uh, I've also talked with Mike Massa uh, about collaborating on a Kildara book uh, because he's got the Jones to write right now and he's a really good writer and he's uh and he really knows the universe extremely well among other things he's a former seal so uh he really gets my carmen very well um so yeah. I'm, I'm considering collaborating with him on that yeah that could be super cool um and he'd be he'd be perfect for that of course with his background so well uh it all sounds cool if you can just find that perfect refrigerator <laughs> Of a, that's a cool 
windless place somewhere to uh, to, to get it done. Um, well, uh, right now, out now, is Monster Hunter Memoir Saints by Larry Curry and John Ringo. It is the book three in the Monster Hunter Memoir series and the final book in the series, and it is a, it's a real corker. And, um, John, I really appreciate you uh, talking with us about it. Uh, well, it was good talking with you guys. Jonathan, hope you enjoy your internship. Thank you very much. This was part two of the interview with John Ringo about Monster Hunter Memoirs, Saints. For part one, check out last week's podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunist on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. The raptor kept a close guard on the stone tower. Twice, Patty had put her head out the door, and twice it dove for her, screaming. She ducked back, gasping, and it went away again to perch in the tree opposite, glass pinions gleaming. Frowning, she considered it, recognizing it for her fears, which she had rejected and shoved away for so long that they had joined forces and taken on a life of their own. Far from remaining in the closet she had made for it, now it was loose in the world, and she was held prisoner in her own prison. She remembered following those glass wings to this place, away from the carnage in the hotel, safe. She had wanted to be safe. And so she was safe, with a dragon guarding her door. Patty stirred and lifted her head to stare out at the dragon on its branch, her nature that she had rejected. She took a deep breath, tasting lavender. Homesickness stabbed her, and she remembered Aunt Anthora sitting on the back patio at Treala Fantrol, 
lavender heaped around her. She gathered the long stems tight, bent them over the flowers to make a basket, and wove them together with a ribbon. She handed one to Patty with a smile. Hang it in your closet to make everything smell sweet. The memory was very strong. The scent of lavender filled her head. Looking out the door, she could see lavender blooming along the path and blinked. There had been no path. There had been no flowers. Only the stone and the closet and her fear. She got to her feet, her eyes on the lavender, and stepped out onto the path, hearing gravel crunch under her feet. Bending, she broke one stem and jerked upright as a chill shadow passed over her. She turned, but it was too far to the door. She looked up into the descending wings and thrust the lavender up into its face. The dragon screamed and swept by, turning on the tip of one wing and landing again with an offended shake of its wings on the highest branch of the tree. Patty stared. Her nature, she thought. Father had told her that she must accept her nature, but had he never told her what her nature was? She was of Corval, a dragon born. That was her nature. Dragon, she called, and opened her arms, centered and calm on the clean gravel path. Come here. The long head swiveled, the wings flexed. It was airborne that quickly, and Paddy waited, watching the bright wings climb. Her breath came quick, and her stomach was tight, but that was all right, she told herself. Fear was the shadow cast by courage. Above her, the dragon circled once, folded its wings, and plummeted toward her. The holding room was dim and rather chilly. He pulled the blanket up under Patty's chin and tried to extend a thread, to touch her, to read her. There was nothing but emptiness, where there had used to be colors and patterns and the vivid play of emotion. Sean closed his eyes and leaned forward in the chair so that he could lay his head down on the pillow next to hers. Perhaps he dozed, or perhaps he waked, no matter, not really. That witch will take a hundred lives, Lute commented, and confound your enemies also. Sean sighed. Which witch? Have you forgotten her already? Tarona Rusk. There was a pause and a sharp sigh. Child. What have you done to yourself? I healed Tarona Rusk. Sean made a conscious effort to gather his strength and lifted his head to glare at the man sitting on the other side of Paddy's stretcher. Lute gave him a straight look and taken several injuries along the path. I'll mend, Sean said, and ignored his other self's smile. Paddy, however, the maiden will be well, Lute interrupted with a glance at her still and glittering face. 
says the man who left her alone when he promised to keep her safe. I did what was in my power, Lute said. I could encourage her, push her, and suggest, but I cannot act here, child, unless you would see the back of the universe broken. Sean frowned. That sounds rather potent for a hedge magician. Lute smiled. I was close enough to a god once. They make sure to bind us close. They? But Lute only smiled and glanced down again at Paddy's face. Here she comes home to us, he murmured. Paddy opened her eyes. She was lying in her bunk, and father sitting beside, leaning forward with tears in his eyes. He was tired, she saw, very tired, and his pattern was very thin. You should have told me, she said, that it was the dragon I must accept. Should I have? How stupid of me. Paddy. He extended a hand, and she caught it between both of hers. Here, she murmured. Let me help. The shuttle had reached Langlast Port. Priscilla received the report with a nod and a murmured, thank you. Most of her attention on Sean's essence. Though he had improved, he was by no means strong and she worried about the extent of his injuries. She had tried, once his pattern had stabilized, to reestablish their link. But it had been like trying to link to a cloud. Finally, fearing that she was doing him further harm, she had withdrawn to watch and worry and occasionally search for Paddy, whose pattern remained missing entirely from the ether. At the moment, Sean's pattern was quiet. Perhaps he was sleeping. Perhaps, Priscilla thought wryly, she ought to do the same. In fact, she thought, she should rest. Sean would need her when he came aboard, and it would be best if she were at full energy. She rose from her chair and abruptly sat down again as a bell pealed inside her head. The linkages, all the linkages with Sean, bloomed brightly silver. She opened her inner eyes and found him immediately, glowing. Not quite as brightly as he had, but bright and strong and firm. And near him, indeed, all but eclipsing him, was a brave new star in the firmament, displaying a pattern Priscilla had never thought to see again. Paddy Yosgalen had accepted her nature, and the universe had acquired a dragon. This has been an Audible Studios production of An Alliance of Equals, Leoden Universe, Ark of the Covenants, Book 2. Written by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Performed by Kevin T. Collins. Producer, Mike Charzik. Copyright 2016, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Production copyright 2016 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible Inc.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jetkowitz. And a 666 gun salute to John Ringo and Monster Hunter Memoirs Saints by Larry Correa and John Ringo. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And as always, keep reaching for the stars.